Well, now let's dive into God's Word together because I, I like talking about that a lot more than I do business stuff, okay? Um, go ahead and open your Bibles up to the Gospel of John, to John chapter 8. We're going to be in a very unique story in God's Word this morning. There's some unique things that happen. And there's some unique things about the text itself. As you're turning over there, I, I want to encourage you to go back to uh, a memory in your own heart that you probably don't want to revisit, Okay? Has there ever been a time in your life where you got busted? You were doing something you know you should not have done, and you got caught. Now, we don't like dwelling on those things. We don't like thinking about our past failures. We don't like going back to those moments. But this morning, there's a reason why I want us to go back there. The story we're looking at today is of a woman who was caught in a pretty big sin, now, we know that all sin is sin, but this is one that, that most people would classify in a, in a big kind of category. This is one of the, the big bad things that a lot of people would think about. She was caught right smack dab in the middle of it, red-handed. And as she was, she had an absolutely incredible encounter with Jesus. So the reason I want you to go back to one of your past failures, one of the times you got caught doing the wrong thing is... I want you to kind of enter into that woman's shame for just a few minutes as we go through this story of this woman who was caught in adultery. Now, as we do, we're actually going to go through it from three different perspectives this morning. There's kind of three different casts of characters in this account that John gives us here. Three different groups of people. There's the, the Pharisees and the scribes who are doing the accusing. There's the woman who was caught, and then there's Jesus. And after we read the story and after we do some introduction, we're going to go through and look at it kind of from each of their perspectives. What was going on with each of these groups as they went through? And, and as we do, what I want you to do is I want you to be looking at the way that they were acting, the way that they were reacting. And in all of that, I want you to take some time to let God examine your own heart to see where the good things are and where the bad things are, Okay. Now, just quickly, I, I do want to say that one of the interesting things about this text is if you a uh, modern translation, not a King James, um, you may notice a little heading above chapter 8 that says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811, okay? What on earth is that talking about? We don't have the original piece of parchment that John wrote his gospel on. We have what are copies of that. Now, those are called manuscripts. Those manuscripts have tremendous amount of agreements, and we've got thousands of manuscripts that give us little pieces of these Gospels or the whole thing. There's a whole field of study that goes back and looks at, at all of these things. You can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Bible you have in your hand contains God's Word. It was authored by God as He worked through His people who He used to write it. Uh, he was the author behind it, and He has miraculously preserved this text much better than any historical text throughout history. Okay, So we're not calling you to question your Bible or what's in it this morning. What that statement is, is there are four manuscripts that we have that are really, really old. Typically, if you think about, how many of you guys ever played that game Telephone? Did you ever play that game Telephone in elementary school where somebody would whisper something in somebody's ear and then they'd whisper it in somebody else's ear and then by the time it got around the circle, it made no sense and wasn't at all what the person said? 
You know what I'm talking about? So people look at that with historical documents. They say the older the historical document, the, the more accurate it probably is just because it doesn't have as much time for anybody to have put anything in there. Well, this passage is not in the four oldest copies that we have of the book of John. However, St. Augustine or Augustine of Hippo, uh, who was around the early ages of things, he was one who was from the area where those copies existed. They were all from one kind of line of manuscripts. They're all in one particular region. They didn't have it in there. And so some have said, well, this was probably added later by a scribe. Actually, Augustine said it should have been in there and it was by John. There are some things about it that don't quite read like the way that John writes. But what takes place in here looks like something Jesus would do. Warren Wearsby and other biblical commentators also say, if you look at this in context, it fits well with a line of argument that Jesus has been making in chapter 7 and the remainder of chapter 8. So I believe that this part was originally intended to be a part of the Gospel of John. There are others who disagree with me about that, but I think when you look at it, I think it's something that Jesus would have done, uh, whether it was originally where it was or not, I don't know. But Anyway, that's so you know, understand a little bit more about why that's where it is. We're going to treat it like it's God's word. We believe that it is God's word. We're going to preach it that way, okay? If you have any questions about what any of that means, feel free to email me, call me. We'll sit down over coffee, lunch, whatever. I, uh, textual criticism is kind of a, an interesting topic, and it's more than we can deal with on a Sunday morning. Um, but I would be happy to, to walk through that with you, okay? Just wanted to, uh, to deal with that caveat just so that you know that where we are on it as a church, okay? We clear? All right. So let's dive in and let's look at this, this passage together. By the way, when I use the word story, when we're talking about a Bible story, I don't mean that story as in made-up story. I mean that as an account of what has taken place. These are true events of things that actually happened. So with that in mind, I would encourage you as we're reading through this, let your mind kind of trace these events. About it from Use your imagination. Put yourself there. Imagine what this would have been like. Start with me there in... Uh, in John chapter 8, verse 1, talking about after Jesus had been teaching and there was some debate with the, the Pharisees there in chapter 7. Then it says this, Jesus, uh, in verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. By the way, capital punishment in those days was, in the Jewish law was carried out by taking very large rocks and throwing them at someone until they died. That's what this is talking about with stoning. Horrible kind of way to die. It sounds very painful. I do not like this idea at all. Um, interestingly, by the way, uh, the Jewish rabbinic tradition had arise, arisen that if you were accusing the person of the crime, you had to be the one to throw the first stone at them. Okay, that's going to come up important in a minute. They asked this to trap him. All right, so verse 5 again. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. We're going to talk about what that trap looked like in a minute. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left and the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on do not sin anymore. Now, 
This is a really interesting account. There's a lot that we don't know. First question that we don't know the answer to is, what on earth was Jesus writing? I don't know, okay? I, I would love to know. I'm looking forward to asking him when we get there. My Hebrew professor said that Jesus was probably writing the Ten Commandments in Proto-Hebrew, which is a, a really old script of Hebrew, and that's why the oldest guys left first. I have no idea. Sounds great. Why not? Um, we have no idea. But what we do see in this instance is three different groups of people responding in incredibly different ways to the same scenario. In fact, in some respects, it looks like Jesus is letting this woman off with sin. But here's what I I want us to all take away from this. As we look at the different nuances, the, the thing I really want you to do today is put yourself in the place of this woman and realize that in Christ, we are all caught, but we're not condemned. Now, let's explain that a little bit more as we look at the story. First, before we get to her, I want to look at the scribes and the Pharisees. When we look at the scribes and the Pharisees, the first thing that we see with them is they were correct, but they were not concerned. They were correct, but they were not concerned. As we look at them, these are the scribes and the Pharisees, it says in verse 3. These were the Jewish religious leaders. Now, we've already seen through the Gospel of John that these guys were not the best, right? They were the ones who were the experts in the Jewish law. They knew the Bible backwards and forwards. They knew everything about it. They knew exactly what was right. They knew exactly what was wrong. And they were really good at making sure that it looked like they did what was right and they didn't do what was wrong. They were all about the appearances. They should have known the law better than anybody, but in fact, that's where they stuck. They can't accept what Jesus is doing because they built their entire belief system around just the do's and the don'ts in the law of Moses and have forgotten what God said. By the way, that's when they said Moses told us to do this. That talks about in the first five books of the Old Testament when God gave his law to Moses, and Moses was the one who wrote down the first five books of the Old Testament. He was the one who wrote down God's law to give to his people. So so these guys knew what Moses had said. They knew it really well, but in doing so, they missed the heart of what was going on. They were experts on what God's law said you should and shouldn't do. They'd even gone beyond what God said, and they'd added all kinds of rules. They put fences around the the law. So if this was wrong, then we're going to say that this is wrong, so that that way you won't ever get to the point where you really sin. But then they'd elevated those laws to the point that they'd made it where it was impossible to really honor Jesus and to follow God. In their drive to know God's word, they'd lost sight of who God is. In fact, God was right there in front of them, and they were fighting against him. Literally. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he was right there in front of them, but they were so caught up in their understanding of what religion looked like and what it looked like to to follow God that they missed God right in the middle. I think there's a danger for us there. So Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's still at the feast there that we talked about, the the festival of booze, though. And, And as he's in Jerusalem, the Pharisees catch a woman in the act of adultery. They bring her to Jesus, but Scripture says their goal was to trap him. Now, we've got to acknowledge something off the bat here. If these men are telling the truth, and she truly was caught in the act of adultery, the Old Testament law did allow for the punishment of stoning. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 says this, If a man commits adultery with a married woman, if he commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Now, interesting note here. Who was supposed to be put to death? Both of them. Who's here? Just the woman. Why? We don't know. D.A. Carson, a biblical commentator, said maybe the guy was quicker than she was. He took off, and they, couldn't, they had to choose which one they were going to go, and they couldn't grab him, but they got her. 
Some have said that maybe one of the guys, one of the scribes of the Pharisees was the guy. We don't know for sure. But we do know that at the very least, if they're right, if this was an actual act of adultery, which by the way, the text doesn't give us any indication that, that they're lying about this. In fact, Jesus tells her to go and sin no more, which implies that she was sinning when she got there. So, so they, they're right. I mean, they're correct. that This is allowable under the law. We don't know why the woman was the only one that was brought to him, but we do know the heart of those who brought her were not in the right place. They were correct, but they weren't concerned. They were trying to put Jesus into a catch-22 kind of situation, between a rock and a hard place. Because see, here's what happened. If the law said that she's supposed to be put to death for her crime, then what he was supposed to do then was be a part of executing this woman. But now Jesus had this reputation of being the friend of tax collectors and sinners. So if Jesus helps put this woman to death, then what's that going to do to his reputation? So how? We can knock him down a notch by getting him involved in this. The other thing is, let's say that, that he says, well, I, we're not going to put her to death. Well, then you don't really care about the law. You claim to be from God. You claim to be the Messiah, and you're disregarding the law? Oh, by the way, if he did help put her to death, they could have used that to get him in trouble with Rome. You see, indication is that since the Jews were under Roman rule at that point, they didn't have the right to carry out capital punishment on their own. We see them in several instances. We actually see it again at the end of chapter 8 where they pick up rocks and they're going to kill Jesus. We see it in Acts when they killed Stephen that these were all mob justice kind of things. These were not officially authorized movements. And if you put somebody to death without Rome's approval, that could get you in trouble. So they say, okay, if Jesus lets her go, then he obviously doesn't care about the law, and so we've got him on that one. But if he has her put to death, then he gets in trouble with all his followers, and he also gets in trouble with Rome. Perfect, we win. So the Pharisees and scribes, whatever their goal was, their hearts were in the wrong place. They may have been technically correct, but they weren't concerned about the right things. Now, for us to understand this, we've got to understand what sin is for just a minute, okay? We've got to take a little bit of a moment to step back from that. One author, a theologian, summarized the concept of sin by saying this, and this should be up on the screen. Sin is a failure to live up to what God expects of us in act, thought, and being. All right, leave that up for a second. Sin is failure to live up to what God expects of us in act, thought, and being, Okay? So here's what sin is. Sin is any time I do anything that fails to live up to God's standards, that fails to to match his character. Not only that, when it says failure to live up to what God expects, that puts it on the flip side too. It's when I don't do the things that I should do. So it's not just the adultery. It's not just the the murder or the theft or the the things that often we think of as the big things like the big 10 out of of the 10 commandments. No, any time I, even in in the way that I am, in my own thoughts, in my own being, any time I'm not living up to who God created me to be, that's sin. That's why sin is bad. That's why sin is wrong is because it goes against who God is and what he's told us to do. It's a big deal, and that's why God set laws in place in Israel with strong punishments for sin. These punishments were put in place so that people would remember how holy God is and how bad sin is and what damage it does to us and to others. Now, if that had been the Pharisees' motivation, we might have had a different story. 
If their motivation was out of a concern for the glory of God and the holiness of God and the holiness of God's people, we want to carry out the punishment that he's prescribed because we want to preserve the holiness of God's people, maybe this would have been a different situation. But that wasn't their goal. Their goal was to trap Jesus. By the way, that's kind of ironic, isn't it? Because he's the, actually the holy God who set these standards in the first place. The, the one that they don't care about is the one who's standing right in their midst. He's the one who said that adultery is wrong. Why, by the way? Why is adultery wrong? Why? Because God made a promise to his people, and he will never, ever abandon that promise. God will always be faithful to his people. In the same way, God instituted marriage as a way for us to demonstrate that relationship in a human way between a man and a woman to relate to God and his people. That covenant love, that always and forever, that never stopping, never failing, never giving up love that God shows his people is what's supposed to be reflected in my marriage and yours. So when we take the gifts that God gives and express them in ways that take that outside the bounds of a covenant marriage that God's established, then what we're doing is we're destroying and distorting the picture that God put in place for us to be able to reflect the character and nature of God in relationship to his people. That's why it's a big deal. Okay? So in that, they wanted to prove that they were right. They weren't concerned about distorting the character and glory of God. No, instead, they were worried about making sure they looked right and Jesus looked wrong. Now let's bring this home to us. Can we get real for a second, guys? Many of us have grown up in church. You've grown up around it. A lot of you guys have grown up here in the South where everybody thinks they're a Christian. You know stuff that's right. You know stuff that's wrong. Whether you're following Jesus or not, you've got an idea of what right and wrong look like in a lot of different areas. How do you respond when you see somebody get caught in a sin of something that you know is wrong? Does it break your heart for the glory of God, for the damage it does to his name and to his creation? Or do you sit back and say, serves them right. That's what they get. Does it make you angry? And, And if so, why does it make you angry? Sin should make us angry, okay? There are certain things about sin that disrupt the glory of God and damage his creation, and those things should make us mad. We should get angry about that for the glory of God. Not because people aren't behaving the way we want them to. Not because they're making us uncomfortable. Do you ever gloat when that person from the other party has something that goes wrong? When, when somebody that you know isn't following Jesus, how do you respond when you hear that that person filed for bankruptcy or they're dying of cancer? Proverbs 24 says this, don't gloat when your enemy falls. Don't let your heart rejoice when he stumbles or the Lord will see, be displeased, and turn his wrath away from him. When you see somebody who's caught in a sin, Those of us who've grown up in the buckle of the Bible belt, it feels. 
We know what's right. We know what's wrong. We've heard all the stories. We memorized the Ten Commandments when we were kids. We've been through Sunday school classes. And some of you guys, this is not your story. You, you didn't grow up in church. And man, we're so glad that you're here. And we hope that you're learning these things. But I really want to hit those of us who would be like the scribes and the Pharisees. We know our Bibles real well. But the question is, when I find somebody who's been caught in a sin, how do I respond to that? Do I respond with compassion? Or do I respond like these Pharisees? Is is my anger towards them because they're being stupid and different? Or is my anger because they're damaging themselves and the glory of God? What's our motivation there? I feel like it's very easy for us to be the Pharisees reaching down and picking up rocks. We can be correct, but not concerned about the right things. What motivates your frustration with other people? Is your heart genuinely motivated by love for God and a concern for others? Or are you correct but not concerned? If it's not that, then you're missing the mark just like the Pharisees did. And any time we miss the mark, any time we sin, any time we fall short of God's glory, we find ourselves in the situation that this woman found herself in. And that is, number two, that we're caught but in Christ we need not be condemned. Caught, but not condemned. Turn your attention away from the angry crowd to the woman in the middle. Can you imagine her embarrassment and her shame? Keep in mind, this was a culture that was much, much, much more reserved than ours. You, you didn't talk about these kind of things. Remember, a, a man wasn't even supposed to speak to a woman, even his wife, in public in some circles. And now you've been caught committing an incredibly intimate sin, and it's been put on display for everyone to see. Can you imagine what it'd be like to be her? Even if this was the first act of adultery this woman had committed, it wasn't the first or only time she had sinned. Remember, guys, if we're honest with ourselves, every single one of us has sinned. Look back at that definition we gave a minute ago. Sin is a failure to live up to what God expects of us in act, thought, and being. Don't answer out, but think for a second. How many sins have you committed today? It's 11.50 in the morning. Think back over your morning. Has there been words that you said to your kids trying to get them out the door that you knew came out of a heart of anger that wasn't godly? Was there a cold shoulder that you kind of threw at your spouse? Was there something you looked at on the internet, some way that you wasted your time, something you spent money on you weren't supposed to? What is it that you've done? Every act, every thought, even into our very being, that doesn't live up to God's standard is sin. Guys, we're all sinners. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means every single person on the face of the earth, every single person in this room, including the guy who's saying these things, deserves to be thrown into the middle of that circle and condemned for what he's done. 
You know, Daniel encouraged us to think back to that moment when in our darkest moment we turned to Christ and he saved us. That's why I wanted when we started this morning, go back to that shame. Go back to that moment where you know you sinned. Not because it's like a dog and I want to rub your face in it, but because I want you to see what's going on here. This woman was caught. She had no hope. And in the same way, you and I are all caught in our sin. There's no way for us to wiggle out of this. We are all guilty. In fact, whether we've committed adultery or not, our sin debt before God is so great that we all deserve the same punishment that she did that day. The first part of Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says this, for the wages of sin is death. That's what you and I deserve. We deserve to die. Like, I don't think you, you understand that. It's easy for me to sit there and say, well, you know, I got saved when I was nine years old. It's like, maybe, let's see, nine, yeah, nine years old. I hadn't turned 10 yet. I got saved as a fourth grade boy. You know, I didn't have to clean up my language a whole lot. I hadn't been an alcoholic for years. I hadn't been smoking and chewing and running with girls that do, right, you know? But at the same time, I still wasn't following Jesus. I still wasn't honoring him as my king. I still was living life my way, doing my thing, what I thought was best, even as a nine-year-old boy. And that's why walking down the back stairway at 100 West Main Street, what used to be Main Street Baptist Church, on a Wednesday night, as I was walking down the stairs, I said, God, there's something here that these kids have that I don't. And if it's you, I want it. That's when God saved me. Before that moment, I deserved to die. I was caught. See, it's interesting because we all deserved to die, and so did the scribes and Pharisees. J.D. Greer says it this way, we are sinners first before we're ever sinned against. We are sinners first before we're ever sinned against. Look back at verse 6. They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse Jesus. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When he persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. Picture it. These guys are ready to kill her. Jesus says, whoever's without sin cast the first stone. Why'd the old guys leave first? You know, I don't know. Maybe it was because Jesus was writing in Proto-Hebrew and they recognized us. I, I doubt it, though. My guess is because it doesn't have to work this way, but usually with age comes a little bit of wisdom. The hot-headed young guys, it took a little bit for them to realize, you know, I've sinned too. The older men were a little bit more humble, a little bit more aware of it. They caught it first. So then that sets up an interesting scenario, doesn't it? Who had the right to throw the first stone? Well, the one who'd never sinned. Who's that? Jesus. 
Jesus had the right to throw the first stone. All these guys walk away. How does he respond? As they leave, it's just this woman and Jesus. Now, Jesus is God, so although he wasn't the one who caught her in the act of adultery, he certainly knew what she had done because he's God. He had every right to put her to death for what she had done. But it sets up an interesting scenario. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, it says this. One witness cannot establish any iniquity or sin against a person, whatever that person has done. A fact must be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And all of a sudden, now Jesus is God. He's kind of a special case here. But it's just him and her. There's no second witness. There's no third witness. She couldn't be put to death on the testimony of one. The only one who had a right to throw a stone is the only one who's left with them. Woman, is there nobody here to condemn you? No one. Neither do I condemn you. Go. Don't sin anymore. Well, how do you do that? Isn't God holy? Isn't God just? How can he just let her walk off like that? He knew what she had done. How, how, come, how come he could just let her go? Does that mean that God's going to take somebody like Hitler and just let him go because he's just going to say, oh, you know, whatever, there's nobody else to condemn you? Like, how does this work? Guys, listen. In Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in him. Why? Because the one who looked at her and said, I don't condemn you, would take her condemnation on himself. You see that? You see, she was caught and she wasn't condemned because she was talking to one who was compassionate and not condoning. As we look at Jesus, we see that he's compassionate but not condoning. Jesus was not soft on sin. He was specifically not soft on sexual sin. Here's what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus was very clear. This is sin. This is wrong. There's nothing about that. There's no wiggle room there. He showed us that in God's understanding of sin, it starts in the heart. So if she'd been caught in the act, then she'd move past that stage and into full sin. In that passage of Matthew, Jesus even goes on to talk about taking extreme measures. Pluck out your right eye. Cut off your right arm. Whatever it takes for you to avoid sin. So how does he just let this woman off? Because he's in, in displaying an incredible compassion. We often talk about John three sixteen about God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever come would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. But sometimes we forget John three seventeen. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In an unimaginable act of compassion, Jesus is offering her a way out. As he extends compassion to her, he's still not condoning her sin. Like, do you feel this tension? Like, do you realize if God's holy and just, this is the law, this is the standard, this is what sin is, God can't just ignore that. 
Maybe this will make it a little bit clearer. This would never happen in the American legal system. There's all kinds of checks and balances that would keep it from happening. But let's say there is a really good judge here in Montgomery County. And he has a wife that he loves absolutely dearly to the end of the earth. Let's say that she is accused of a crime. And in that crime that she's accused of, she's brought before his bench to be tried. Now, again, they've never let that happen, but let's just run this for the sake of thought experiment. No matter how much he loves her, for him to continue to be a just judge, he can't just let her go. If the evidence is presented and she is found guilty beyond any reasonable doubt, he has to punish her, right? Otherwise, he's no longer a just judge and has no right to serve as a judge. Does that make sense? Are we clear on that part? God's the same way. In fact, infinitely more so because his justice is intrinsic in him. He's not just applying some external law. This is coming out of his character and his nature. So God can't just let sin go. As much as he loves us, he can't just ignore it. He can't just overlook it and act like it didn't happen. Think about how he described himself to Moses. Exodus chapter 34, it says, The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. He's gracious, he's compassionate, he's loving, but he is also just. So where is the justice of God in this story? How can he just let her walk off? How can he let any of us walk off? How can we escape condemnation? Because the one who looked at her and said, neither do I condemn you, was willing to take her condemnation on himself. Isaiah describes it this way, talking about Jesus and prophesying about the death that Jesus would die He said, but he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we were healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. How could he let her go? Because he was taking that punishment on himself. He was going to die in her place. That's why Paul would write to the church at Corinth, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He bore my sin and he bore your sin on himself on the cross. And when he died, he took the death that you deserve, that I deserved, died in your place, was buried and rose from the dead to say that he had taken all of that condemnation on himself. He had taken all of your punishment, all of your sin, all of that separating you from God. He took all of that to himself. He didn't excuse her. He didn't just sweep it under the rug and act like it didn't happen. He called her to live and walk in holiness as he told her to go and sin no more, knowing that the price of her freedom was his to bear. That's why Romans 8 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Period. End. You and I are the woman, caught and ready to be killed. (laughs) Sometimes we're the scribes more concerned about being thought correct than about being truly right with God. And yet, if we're in Christ, the only one who had a right to condemn us and throw that first son, 
He is the one who came and freely sent his son to take my condemnation, my death, to die in my place so that I could have his righteousness. He didn't let the woman off the hook. He didn't exonerate the Pharisees. He died for the sins of the world, offering grace and forgiveness to anyone who will call in the name of the Lord. So how should we respond? We should respond like Jesus did. When we find sin, instead of standing back and pointing fingers, we should show compassion without condoning. There's a fine line. It's challenging to walk at times. But if Christ can show mercy and grace, we can show it too. We should remember that we too were caught in our own sin and condemned without Christ, that God in his mercy saved us. And that should keep us from being like the Pharisees and the scribes, acting out of pride instead of a concern for God and his glory. So thinking about these three cast of characters, just looking up here at the screen for just a second, which do you most resonate with? Which is the biggest issue for you? Sean, you know, I, I really think that my theology is right. I think, I think that I, I have a pretty good sense of what God says is right and wrong, but to be honest with you, I've, I've gotten pretty proud about it. I'm not being compassionate. My heart's not in the right place. And ask God to soften that. Sean, today I realize that you've talked about sin. I've never fully understood it, but man, I'm a sinner. If that's what sin is, if that's what the Bible teaches, then man, I'm in bad shape. And I know that I'm condemned in my sin, so I want to trust in Jesus today. Or maybe today you are a believer and you've allowed your life to get off track. You've, you've moved into sin that, that is keeping you away from experiencing the grace and the forgiveness that God offers. So today you need to come back to him and say, God, I want to be put into Christ in a fresh way. You can't lose your salvation. But you can lose the joy. You can lose the hope. You can lose the peace. So God, I, I need to rest in the fact that I was caught in my sin, but you've saved me. Or today I'm caught in it and I need you to save me. And then, like I said, maybe for you, you have a real hard time because you're too compassionate when there's sin. You need to ask God to help you get angry for the right reasons, to be able to to be willing to, to stand for truth when it happens. But at the same time, maybe you're on the other side and you've been too rigid, you need to show compassion. What do you need to do? I'm going to give you just a minute to respond. Go ahead and bow your head with me. Close your eyes. What do you need to do differently this week because of what you've seen in God's word? I'm going to give us just a minute here. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to let you respond to what God says. If you need to talk with me about how to find a relationship with Jesus or you want to come down here and and make these steps an altar and pray or whatever you need to do to respond, I'm going to give you the freedom to do that. Um, If you want to talk, I'm down front, but if not, you just do business with God where you are. But what do you need to do next because of what God said? Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come to you, we know you're in charge. We know you're in control. Thank you that you're a compassionate God who is also just. Thank you that you're a loving God who is also holy and righteous. 
Help us to be rightly related to you, to acknowledge our sinfulness, to cry out for Jesus to save us, to show compassion, to uphold righteousness, just like we saw Jesus doing. We thank you that he's the one who was condemned for us. We thank you that he died our death and was raised to give us his life. So help us respond as you see fit this morning.